You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. We have achieved a somewhat inauspicious honor. Americans are now world champions in the affliction of anxiety. It's true. Around the turn of the new millennium, this, this century, anxiety surpassed depression to become the most prominent mental health issue in America. The U.S. is now the most anxious nation in the world. Does that surprise you? You know, I'm, I was, I'm inclined to believe that poorer nations, you know, those countries in the developing world, those places with high rates of poverty and disease and violence, would far outpace us in the worry department, but that's not true. A global study has shown that Nigeria and other developing nations like it are five times less likely to show significant anxiety levels than Americans. And what's really sad is that when these citizens of less anxious nations immigrate to America, they tend to become just as anxious as we all do. Now, on the personal level, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to confess that anxiety is a dominant feature of our life. I know it's true of my life. Anxiety rules. We worry about the big stuff, life-altering things like family relationships and careers and illnesses. We worry about the really big stuff. Can Iran be trusted with a nuclear deal? Will we ever realize racial justice and equity in this country? And we worry about the little stuff. Will I find a parking space in time to make my appointment downtown? Will Russell Wilson and the Seahawks ever negotiate a contract? Well, thankfully, we don't have to worry about that now. But here's the new one. Will it really take three days to download Windows 10 on my laptop? <laughs> While the reasons for anxiety are oftentimes totally legit, the effect that worry has on our life is damaging. Science tells us anxiety itself can be a killer. Stress and worry can cause disease or at least contribute, it, contribute to it, which leads to the absurd reality that we are now worrying about how much we worry. We have become captive to anxiety, enslaved. Have I adequately raised the stress level in this place? Well, today we're in the fifth week of this Summer Freedom series. And I think it'd be good for us just now that we're in the fifth week to just pause and do a little recap, take a little moment to review. If you recall, George began this series five weeks ago in the book of Galatians with a fundamental declaration from chapter five where the apostle Paul asserts it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Freedom and personhood are somehow related. We are divinely designed for freedom. Freedom is our destiny. And in the first two weeks of the series, George offered two key ideas that provided a framework for us, provided a bit of scaffolding to help us think about the freedom to which we're destined. First, he defined freedom in Christ for us. He said, freedom isn't the ability to do whatever we want to do at any time. Freedom isn't about the, absences of, the absence of constraints contrary to what our culture would tell us. He said, rather, freedom is the promise and the process of becoming who we're intended to be. 
As followers of Jesus Christ, we're, on, we're invited on a journey of freedom, a journey to become our best selves. That's the destiny of those who become apprentices of the Master Jesus. As, as apprentices, we are trained in the disciplines and rhythms of freedom living. And George's second piece of scaffolding was to point us to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He helped us to see that the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to grow the spirit of freedom within us. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to form the person of Jesus in us, the most free person who ever lived. And in Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul introduces nine qualities of the free life. He calls them the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the essential elements of freedom. They are qualities that grow in our lives over time, like, like fruit that ripens in our life. And these past two weeks, Ryan and Courtney helped us explore the fruits of love and joy. And today, we want to take a, take a look at the fruit of peace. Now, if we were to move out of Galatians and advance a further a few pages into the New Testament, we'd come to the book of Philippians, where the Apostle Paul refers to the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That phrase, that phrase gives me hope that perhaps there's something that I can take hold of, something that I can work with, something that I can incorporate into my life that will help me to confront this slavery of anxiety that dominates my life. So let's turn with hope to the book of Philippians chapter 4. You can find it in that Bible in front of you on page 955. Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to start reading at verse 4. But as you get there, let's just pause for a moment and pray. Holy God, I pray that as we open your word, as we look into it, that you would show us your way through it to us, that you would interpret it to us, that you'd help to work it into our lives. And then as you lead us from this place, as you send us out into your world, that you'd help us to work it out in your world. Guide us through this text. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, listen as I read for us Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. 
Well, this passage is a collection of instructions to and encouragement for the Christian community in Philippi. And right at the beginning of this chapter 4, Paul is working with a specific conflict within the community, but then he transitions, and Paul begins this passage that we just read with the, with the echoing phrase of rejoice. Now, rejoice is an uplifting word. It's a great word, but a better translation here in that cultural context would actually be celebrate. Celebrate in the Lord always. Again, I say celebrate. You know, we tend to think of rejoice as an emotion, a sense of joy welling up, an inward feeling that gains outward expression. But in the world of Philippi, in that cultural context, they would have understood Paul's call to rejoice as an invitation to public celebration. You see, you see in, the, in the Greco-Roman world, the folks there would, would organize festivals and games and shows to celebrate their gods, to make visible their gods in their cities. And Paul is saying, well, why shouldn't the followers of Jesus also exuberantly celebrate in Jesus Christ? Now, while he encourages public celebration, Paul qualifies what celebration might look like, what it should really be about. Look what he says here. He says, he encouraged the Philippian Christians to be known as a community of gentleness and graciousness. So in other words, he says, if you're going to celebrate, if you're going to be publicly celebrating, make it more of a block party than Mardi Gras. One of my literary mentors, Hugh Halter, was reflecting on a wedding that he officiated recently. He commented on how a party is such a warm and engaging place for strangers to come together, total strangers to come together and to celebrate the goodness of God. He reflected on this, this experience. He said, we, we all ate together, we played together, we shared stories, we mingled naturally with such a robust love that surface conversations moved to depths you wouldn't think possible. As the hours and depth of celebration continued, you could feel a palpable friendship grow in everyone. Something mystical but tangible was occurring. People were experiencing the kingdom of God. You know, there's nothing like a, a good party to open up people's lives. Where Jesus can move in and surprise. Where God is made visible in the context of human celebration, breaking out of the confines of human religiousness. And there's an invitation here in Philippians chapter 4 to be good partiers as a way of giving witness to the light and life of Jesus. Hope we're encouraged in that. Well, moving on here in chapter 4, we get to the heart of the peace message. Here in verse 6, Paul articulates a preposterous statement. He says, get this, he says, do not worry about anything. How ridiculous. To those of us who are counted among the world champions of anxiety, that must sound absolutely absurd. I don't know about you, but I read this verse, and in reaction, the iTunes playlist in my head starts running, and I hear Bobby McFerrin's Jamaican accented voice, don't worry, be happy, which then goes right into a refrain of Hakuna Matata. 
<laughs> That's exactly right. How can Paul assert such a ridiculous statement? Well, the basis of this assertion essentially begins in verse 5. Now, I'm no Bible scholar, but in my opinion, there's a, a, a verse notation error here. If I were to reconstruct this passage, I would do a little adjustment here. I would do a little cut and paste, and I would take the passage, the Lord is near, from the end of verse 5. I'd cut that, and I'd put that right at the beginning of verse 6. So it would read something like this. Verse 6 would read, the Lord is near. Therefore, do not worry about anything. In the second week of the series, George worked in Galatians 5 with that core dichotomy that Paul set up, that dichotomy between flesh and spirit. With flesh being this human impulse toward autonomy, towards self-sufficiency, towards self-determination. And the flesh was in direct opposition to the spirit, which is the realm of relationship between persons and the living God. And what Paul is getting at here is that anxiety is rooted in the flesh, in the realm of human autonomy, in the delusion that we're in control. And when we perceive that things are out of control, we experience anxiety. Worry is rooted in sovereignty confusion. We move in this world under the illusion that we are in control. So when reality strikes and it's beyond our meager capacities to take care of, worry happens. This is what Jesus was driving at in the Luke passage that Jennifer read for us earlier in the, in the service. He said, don't worry about your life, what you eat, what you're going to put on. Now, to be fair, the folk that Jesus was talking to had a lot more to worry about in each of these categories than we do today. These were peasant folk that he moved among, and they did not have a Costco supply of food in their freezer. And if they were perhaps particularly fortunate, they had one garment more than they were currently wearing. And yet, Jesus confronts them with this clear, uncompromising message, stop worrying. And he punctuates his assertion with a very true and practical point that worrying accomplishes absolutely nothing. He says, can you by worrying add a single moment to your life? But Jesus goes further than practical wisdom. He points to them to a truer and deeper reality. He points them to the kingdom of God. He says, listen, the pagans don't have a clue. They're striving after all this stuff of life that isn't the essential stuff. But you, you are a child of the living God. Your reality is fundamentally different. So don't strive after the ordinary stuff. Strive for the kingdom. Now, the Greek word here for strive is the word zeteo, which means to demand, to require, to crave. This is a hunger term. It's hunger language that Jesus uses here. Isn't that beautiful, the construct of this passage? He says, work up. Essentially, Jesus is saying, if you're going to focus on being hungry, then develop a hunger for the kingdom. 
Work up an appetite for God and his reign. Focus your energies in alignment with God's gracious, generous, life-giving rule. Strive for the kingdom. Well, the kingdom of God is, at its core, about God's sovereignty, breaking in with love and power so that human beings, each made in God's image and each one dearly loved, may relax, may relax in the knowledge that God is in control. In the kingdom, there is no sovereignty confusion. Jesus calls us to strive for the kingdom. And in attending to the kingdom, sovereignty is reframed. God's sovereignty enacted in the inbreaking movement of the kingdom is the basis for the free life. So now it makes sense that the next statement that Paul renders after the Lord is near is, don't worry about anything. But Paul goes farther here. And he graciously points us in the direction of peace. And that pathway to peace is found in the discipline of prayer. Prayer is merely the action of turning to God, facing into him, orienting to the creator and giver of life. Now Paul elaborates on prayer here a bit in this passage. He says, do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Make your requests known to God. Supplication. Don't you just love coming across a term that you have never used nor never even heard in human speech? Supplication. What what does supplication mean? You know, it sounds like something you do at the gym. Yeah, I was at CrossFit this morning and I got some serious supplicating in. Try to do about three three sets of uh, of some serious aerobic supplication when I get in there. That's not what it means. Supplication. The Greek word here is deesis, which simply means to seek from a sense of need, to turn to God in the awareness of our need. And the kind of prayer that displaces anxiety is the kind that comes from a core acknowledgement of our need, our powerlessness, our inability to take control, and then to put that neediness before our loving Father. That's the sort of prayer that displaces anxiety. Prayer is the reorientation process that removes us from the center of our world and focuses us in the central person and the truer reality of the kingdom of God. That's what prayer is. It's a reorientation process. And in that reorientation, the gift given is the peace that transforms us, that transcends all understanding, the peace that transcends all understanding, a sense of our well-being wrapped up in God's wholeness that is deeper and truer than what we could possibly comprehend with mere intellect. The sense sense of wholeness goes deeper than the flesh and penetrates our spirit, and that is a great gift. And the ministry of the spirit is to grow that fruit in our life. And the produce of that fruit is freedom. And our part 
in the cultivation process is simply to pray. So with respect to prayer, let me close with two recommendations that I have for us. You know, it's easy to get the impression that the prayer that Paul describes here is merely transactional. Right? I give God my needs. I put together a sort of laundry list of concerns, and then he gives me an injection of peace. But prayer is not transactional. Prayer is transformational. It's a process of seeking and discovering the deeper and truer realities of the kingdom of God. Prayer is the channel of relationship with God and as such requires frequency and duration. Frequency and duration. And as we know, authentic relationship changes us. Andrew Murray, in his classic book on prayer, titled, With Jesus in the School of Prayer, I'll tell you, in my opinion, this is the best book on prayer ever written. If you can get through the 18th century language, you've got something. But Andrew Murray, in his book, With Jesus in the School of Prayer, he says this, Prayer is a habit a practice of relationship with God that has the effect of aligning our will and spirit with his will and spirit. That's transformation. So my recommendation is this. Carve out regular, substantive time for prayer. Well, what does substantive mean? Substantive means ample time to unhook from the noise of our world and to focus on the things of God. I know that's much easier said than done. The demands of our lives just crush in, and the challenge to carving time, carving ample time out is enormous. But is there anything more important as followers of Jesus Christ that we could do? Well, look how Paul ends this passage in Philippians 4. He says, in summary, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy. Think on these things. And actually, think on is a poor translation of the Greek word here, logizomai. A better translation is dwell on, meditate upon, consider thoroughly. These are the attributes of the kingdom of God, the very thing that Jesus calls us to strive after. So it would make sense that we must give time to the meditation of such things. It takes time to explore, to marinate in, to indwell these attributes of the kingdom. Meditation is a key aspect of freedom producing prayer. So I recommend making regular ample time for it. Develop the discipline, the training regimen of prayer that it may shape your life. So recommendation one is to be disciplined in prayer. Recommendation two is to be completely undisciplined in prayer. In Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he writes, Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying. Prayer is the channel of relationship with the living God. Why would we boundary that to a particular occasion or place? Again, Andrew Murray writes, 
Prayer is fellowship with the unseen and most holy one. The powers of the eternal world have been placed at prayer's disposal. It is the very essence of the true religion and the channel of all blessings. It is a secret of power and life, not only for ourselves, but for others, for the church, for the world. It is to prayer that God has given the right to take hold of him and his strength. It is on prayer that the promises wait for fulfillment, that the kingdom waits for its coming, and the glory of God waits for its revelation. What a high calling. Imagine how amazing it would be to develop a, a conscious engagement in momentary prayer such that praying would become as effortless and natural as breathing. That sounds like freedom to me. So in closing, here's my exhortation to all of us. Develop the disciplined and undisciplined rhythms of prayer. It is this transformative reorientation to the kingdom, to the reality of God's sovereignty, where the fruit of peace is cultivated in our lives. And the wide expanse of freedom living begins to take shape. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for this channel of relationship with you that you call prayer. That we're invited on this journey of freedom where our part is to merely turn to you. Our part is to merely open our lives in need to you. And then you give us the peace that surpasses all understanding. God, we pray for that transformative process in our life. And lead us forth from this place as people of light and life in the person of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.